0: Thank you. I love to hear our people sing the praises of the Lord, and I'm thankful we're in a congregation that loves to sing. We have a lot to sing about. Well, last week, uh, let me ask you to turn back to Revelation 12, if you will, uh, and just remind you where we are. Last week, we uh, completed the second cycle that we've talked about in the book of Revelation, where the seventh trumpet heralded the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we concluded Chapter 11, there was a hymn sung by the angels declaring the victory of the Lord Jesus. There was a hymn of the saints in heaven that are rejoicing in Jesus' victory. And that was the conclusion of the second cycle of judgment we find depicted in the book of Revelation. And so this morning as we come to chapter 12, we're beginning what we call the third cycle. And this grand drama that is depicted for us involves three main characters and three scenes the woman and the dragon and the lamb now children think with me who in the book of Revelation is described as the lamb and lots of other places in the Bible who is the lamb it's Jesus that's exactly right So, as we're in chapter 12, we're looking at the woman and the the dragon and the lamb, and we're starting this section really of three chapters talking about this cosmic war between the forces of Satan and the forces of the Lord Jesus Christ. It describes Satan's attack on Christ, on his bride, the church. It depicts Satan's ultimate defeat and Jesus' ultimate triumph. Now, I want to talk about the seven cycles of judgment that we read of in Revelation, I want to be clear, these are not seven separate cycles, one after the other. It's seven depictions of the very same events, seven successive descriptions of these temporal judgments of God poured out on the world that He's already pouring out. On this world, but that will culminate in the final judgment and the glorious return and victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same story told over and over, seven times, uh, from different perspectives and in general with increasing intensity and glory. So, in a sense, as we look at this drama, this third cycle, it takes us all the way back to the very beginning of creation through the Old Testament church, those faithful Jews, the seed. Of Abraham and Satan's attempt to destroy the people of God, the royal line of Messiah, his attempt to to prevent the birth of Jesus and allowing Jesus to be born or not being able to prevent it to destroy him. And then when that fails, the ferocious conflict not only between Jesus and Satan, but then he turns his wrath upon the church as well. That's Revelation chapter 12 in a nutshell. Satan's battle against Christ and the church, all told in this graphic imagery. So, in this chapter, we have three main characters and three grand scenes. So, let's look at each of the characters first, and then we'll look at the three scenes. First of all, we see the woman clothed with the sun. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This is a fascinating description. This woman clothed with the sun. Who does that represent? Who is it that's depicted here in verse 1? Without going into a lot of detail, uh, you'll see as we go forward, but I'm going to tell you now, it represents all of the people of God for all time. And the description of these adornments, that she's clothed with the sun, the moon is under her feet, and the, the crown of 12 stars on her head represents the glory that is the church. The 12 stars can refer to the 12 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, to the 12 apostles in the New Testament. We're not talking about the glorified church in heaven. We're talking about the church here on earth, Old Testament and New Testament, one people of God. Now, as you look around this room this morning, you're seeing the church. Not all of the church, but you're seeing the church. Don't make the mistake of saying, this building. Now, I'm thankful our building is recently renovated. It's nice. It's pretty. I visited some majestic cathedrals and the architecture and the art would 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 blow your mind. But that's not the church. The church is the saints gathered together for the Lord. So if we're really honest, we would probably have to say, you know, as I look around, I don't see glory radiating <laughs> from one another here, right? Uh, We don't sometimes look all that radiant or all that triumphant, but this heavenly vision is giving us a glimpse of the church from the heavenly perspective. And from heaven's point of view, we're already glorious. We're already radiant, purified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important to remember as we see this woman of Revelation chapter 12 to recognize she is the church, Old Testament and New, that that the church... Is one church, Old Testament and New Testament. One unified group of believers. One chosen race. One royal priesthood. One radiant bride. And when we get to heaven, there will be one new Jerusalem. And we read in verse 2 that she's pregnant. She's, she's crying out in birth pains and the agony of childbirth. And verse 5 tells us, that this child about to be born, this male child, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that could be none other but the Lord Jesus himself. Psalm 2 tells us he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So it's easy for us to think, well, huh, if he gives birth to Jesus, must be Mary, right? Well, as we go further, we'll see that What's described here is about far more than Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus. The the reference actually goes back much further. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bibles, please. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. And God is pronouncing judgment, first of all, on the serpent, Satan, who tempted them, then on Adam and Eve themselves. But what he says to the serpent Genesis 3 verse 14, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust, uh, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He will crush the head of Satan. And yes, his heel will be bruised, but not with the with with finality of Satan's defeat. So that's really the key to understand. The Old Testament is a key to understanding the book of Revelation. So from, from, from chapter three of Revelation, from the, what we call the, the, the proto-evangelicum, the, the first announcement of the gospel, we find uh, that Messiah is portrayed here as the seed of the woman. And again, the woman here is not just Eve. It is the entire royal line leading up to the Messiah. So the first character we find in this vision is not simply Eve and it's not Mary. It is the church who is the bride of Christ. The second character is this great red dragon. Verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, verse 9 tells us that dragon is none other than Satan himself. And Jesus, you remember in his letter to the churches, he mentions Satan a number of times, I think four in chapter 11, there's a brief reference to the beast who rose from the abyss and he was able to kill the two witnesses. But we've not seen Satan as a prime actor in the drama yet until we come to chapter 12. And he's described as having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems or seven crowns. Those seven heads highlight Satan's cunning wisdom, he's a crafty adversary. It also contributes to the, the overall hideousness of this image, this beast. The ten horns symbolize that great power that Satan has to wreak havoc and destruction on this world. And the seven crowns, these seven diadems, point to his authority over the present world. In John 16, verse 11, Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul calls him the God, little g, the God of this age. Ephesians 2, verse 2, calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So we read here that his tail swept a third of the, scars, the stars out of sky, out of the sky down to the earth. Now some believe that's a reference to Satan's original fall as a fallen angel and a third of the angels fell with him. Well, if you, if, you, if you look at the timeline here that, that John provides for us, this war is taking place after the church has already been established. So this can't predate the creation of man. It's Satan's attack on the woman and on the male child long after Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven. There are, there are allusions in the Bible to what that looked like, but not nearly as much clarity as we might think but but what we see here is this this a depiction of a cosmic conflict between satan and his minions and between the lord jesus and here michael and the angels who serve the lord and a conflict that actually reached its very climax when jesus died on the cross now, Satan's desire, his intention, his purpose was to prevent that from happening, to prevent the Messiah from ever coming, or if he came, to prevent him from fulfilling his mission. So he takes his stand in front of the woman to try to devour this child as soon as he's born. The well, third character is the son of the woman, the male child, which can only refer, as I said, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the nations with a rod of iron. He is the one who is the seed of the of the woman referred to in Genesis 3. And again, not the woman seed of Mary, not even the seed simply of Eve, but of the entire royal line of the people of God. So here we find in this brief uh, this depiction of the characters, this little uh, mini-drama that's going to be exposed or, or explained large, more largely in subsequent verses, we find this, this summary of Satan's strategies throughout the Old Testament all the way up to the very end of time. A conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And his great goal in all of this is to destroy the Messiah as well as his offspring, which is the church. So these are the three main characters in our vision here in Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at the three scenes. And the first scene, as I I said, is here in verses 1 through 6. This glorious woman about to give birth... She's in the pains and the agony of childbirth, and this dragon who's poised in front of her to snatch up her son or to devour him as soon as he's born. Throughout the Old Testament, we find story after story of the enemies of God's people trying to destroy the royal line, this line that ultimately would lead to the Messiah. And over and over, God frustrated Satan's evil designs. You recall, there was Cain and Abel. Abel had a heart for God. Cain did not. Cain slaughtered Abel. Has the line of Messiah been snuffed out already? No, the Lord sent Seth, a godly line. But ultimately, most of the uh, of, of the descendants of Seth rebelled against the Lord as well. And the Lord saw fit to bring judgment upon the world and, and, and wipe out all of mankind, except for one godly man and his family, Noah, preserving the line of Messiah once again. In time, Abraham became the father of The people of God, the patriarch, and then his son Isaac, and then his sons, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, and they ultimately ended up in Egypt and were taken as slaves. And again, it appeared that the line of Messiah was threatened, but as we've been studying in the book of Exodus, God delivered them with a glorious delivery and brought them to the promised land. Years later, Saul is king of Israel proves to be wicked, and so David is anointed, and we know that Messiah is going to come from the line of David. And yet Saul, in jealous rage, pursues David to kill him over and over again. And yet the Lord preserved David and established his throne. Many, many years later, Ahab and Jezebel ruled wickedly. And their daughter, Athaliah, became the queen, and she tried to kill every member of the line of David. She tried to extinguish the line of David, but she was not successful. There was one child, a baby, left named Joash. His aunt was able to rescue him and hide him away for six years. And then as a child, as a six-year-old, he became king, and the line of David was established once again. The children of Israel rebelled against God and they were conquered by the nation Babylon and they were dispersed. And yet, 70 years later, God restored his people to their land. And yet, some remain in Susa. And you recall this vile Haman who sought a decree from the king to exterminate all the Jews. He had an utter hatred for the people of God and he sought their extermination. And yet, God overturned Haman's designs. Through Queen Esther. And we see over and over again uh, Satan crouching, trying to to, to destroy the seed of the woman. And God rescues this royal line and this royal seed over and over and over again. Ultimately, Jesus is born to Mary in the fullness of time. And the king Herod gets word of it and he seeks to kill this king of the Jews who has been born, hoping to maintain his dynasty. And so every baby boy, two years and under, that was born in the region of Bethlehem was slaughtered in a futile attempt to snuff out the Messiah once again. Now I want you to stop just a minute and think about this. What was Herod thinking? The wise men come and they say, where is he born? to The king of the Jews. And the, the... the scribes find the prophecy and say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Herod knows it's the prophecy. He knows this is the promised Messiah, and he somehow thinks he can defeat God? What incredible arrogance to think that he, a mere man, could frustrate the eternal plan of the sovereign God. But that's exactly what? The spirit Satan projects onto people. He blinds them. Satan knows he is defeated. And yet, he still pursues his hellish purposes. And he puts it in the hearts of those who are his children to take God on. And they do so at their own peril and their own destruction. So let's look then at verse 5. This woman gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. In spite of Satan's best efforts, Jesus is born, and so Satan has to turn to plan B. If I can't prevent his birth, I'll just kill him as soon as he's born. Well, that that failed, obviously. And then it tells us the male child was swept up or taken up to God. Now, that's a huge compression of the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? But that's what uh, John is referring to here. That's what's being depicted here is that Jesus won that victory. He defeated Satan. He died and uh, a, 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 a victorious death. He rose triumphant over sin and death, and then he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he intercedes for us until he comes once again to take us to himself. Satan had done his level best to defeat Jesus, and yet he failed. And after he failed, he turns his attention to the woman. He was caught, Jesus was caught up to God in his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God which, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, kids, when I use the word wilderness, when John refers to the woman going into the wilderness. Who else do we know that went into the wilderness for a period of time? And we know Jesus went to the wilderness 40 days to be tempted, but there was somebody else who was there for a really long time. Remember who that was? John the well, John the Baptist, yeah, but even way before that. Remember the children of Israel? They were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them gloriously and took them to the wilderness where he provided for them. Ultimately, ended up being for 40 years, before they entered the promised land. This is the the wilderness biblically is, a, is an image, it's a metaphor for where we are now. We're already delivered from slavery in Egypt, but we're not yet in the promised land. We're already delivered from our sin, and we have life in Christ, but we're not yet taken possession of that inheritance. Kept in heaven for us that will never perish, or spoil, spoiler fade. We are in the wilderness, in, that, in between the already and the, not, and the not yet. And we are that woman. And it says that she is there for 1,260 days. Now, we've seen that same number in chapter 11. We've seen that number of, of 1,260 days, of 42 weeks, of three and a half years. And it points to the fact that there is a limit to the time of this conflict. It doesn't last forever. The power of Satan to ravage the church is limited. Now, that's the conclusion of scene one. And it leaves a lot of questions in my mind, but those questions are addressed in the subsequent or the rest of the chapter. So, scene two, we find this great war that arose in heaven. Michael, the leader of the angelic host, is warring against the dragons and his hellish host. Satan is defeated. He's cast out. He's lost his place in heaven. Verse 7, a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I, you recall when Jesus' disciples came back from their uh, their time of individual ministry two by two, and they came back rejoicing that even the demons submitted to their names, and Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning to the earth, defeated by the Lord. Now, we're not referring here again to that initial fall from heaven. In fact, that's confirmed in verses 10 through 12, as we'll look at in just a moment. Let's go ahead and read that. Verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. This is after Jesus died on the cross, defeating sin and death, rose and ascended into heaven. The accuser of our brothers, this is after the church has been redeemed. He's been thrown down to accuse them day and night before our God. There were no brothers for Satan to accuse before that initial cosmic rebellion, were there? Because there were, no, there were no humans at that time. So, what does it mean they accuse? Satan accused in heaven. The accused of our brothers has been thrown down and accuses them day and night before our God. Remember Job 1, where, Job, where Satan appears before God and God says, If you consider my servant Job, there's none like him. He fears God and shuns evil. And Satan says, Yeah, he's a hireling. The only reason he serves you is because you bless him and you protect him. If you take your hand of protection away, he'll curse you to your face. He's a mercenary believer. Or you remember in Zechariah chapter 3, where Joshua the high priest goes to appear before the Lord, and Satan is at his right hand there to accuse him. And it says Joshua was wearing dirty, filthy clothes. So in that case, Satan's accusations actually were true, but only half true. And the Lord rebukes Satan and says, this man is a brand plucked from the fire. And while Satan is standing there watch, watching, has been silenced by the, by the Lord himself, God takes away those filthy garments and replaces them with pure priestly vestments as the angel of the Lord stood by. So hate Satan is depicted in the Old Testament as standing before the Father, accusing the brothers. But Romans 8 chapter 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those accusations of Satan are no longer they hold no weight they're no longer received. He can no longer accuse us before the throne of God in heaven. Paul asks the question later in Romans 8 verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Satan still accuses us to our hearts. And he can, he can manipulate us terribly, but the reality is he has nothing to say before the bar of God's justice. He is silenced. And that's really all that matters. So here we have these loud voices in heaven uh, singing the praise of the Lord, rejoicing over the glorious triumph of the Lord Jesus over our enemy, his enemy, Satan. And verse 11 tells us that all for whom he died share In that victory, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even to death. They were faithful, even to the point of very death. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus defeated Satan. How did he defeat Satan? How did Jesus defeat Satan? He kept the law perfectly. He He never surrendered Uh, or or never never compromised in any area, and he died to pay for our sins, not his own. And then he rose triumphant over sin and death. He defeated Satan by apparently losing. That's the paradox of the gospel and the triumph of the Lord Jesus. And so it says they also, that's Christians, those who follow him, they love not their lives unto death, and so they too defeat Satan. Mm. Remember Jesus had called the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3 he called them to be faithful even unto death. He, he called them to be overcomers. And the great irony of this cosmic conflict is that when Satan succeeds to, in putting a Christian to death he thinks he's won. But in reality once more he has concealed his loss. He loses all over again. It's through death seemingly as the world would look on it looks like we we lose but in fact that is our greatest triumph but the ultimate prize is not conquest in this world in this life it's the new jerusalem and the glory of heaven so so we read this call to rejoicing in verse 12 rejoice O heavens and you who dwell on them but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He suffered two great defeats. He was defeated in, well, actually three. He was defeated. He was not able to prevent Messiah from coming. He was not able to uh, defeat Messiah when he was here. He was defeated by him. And now he's defeated by the saints over and over again. And yet he is determined to inflict whatever harm he can In whatever time he has left. And so that brings us to the third scene in verses 13 and following. The dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth and he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. That's the church. He went after, he goes after us and he pursues the woman with a vengeance, pointing to Satan's ongoing persecution to the people of God. This is the next phase of his battle plan against the child. That she is born. And that's what Jesus told us to expect. Turn with me to John chapter 15, if you would. This is the upper room discourse. It's Jesus' sort of final message to his disciples before he goes to the cross to fortify their faith, to strengthen them, to give them direction. Once he knows he will not be with them any longer. And in John chapter 15, verse 18, we read this. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember this, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on my account or on account of me, my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus told us over and over, expect the world that we live in to hate us. This world is not a friend of grace. Expect, anticipate, even persecution. He said rejoice and be glad because so they treated the, the prophets who were before you. And so... At the very beginning of this vision, Satan turns his attention to the the woman, to the church, and she's given these wings of an eagle, and she flies out into the wilderness. And it's basically a repeat of what we read in verse 6, where she's, verse 6, she's nourished for 1260 days, three and a half years. Here it says in verse 14, she's nourished for a time, times and half a time. That's three and a half years. And it points to this period between Jesus' ascension and his final victorious return, where the church is preserved and provided for and protected from Satan's attacks spiritually, but not ultimately or finally, or not entirely, rather, because believers will continue to be persecuted. They'll be oppressed. Some will be killed, but the church will never perish. We, we sang a little while ago of, of those tears that we do not understand because we live in a broken and fallen world that will continue to pursue us with hostility but the church will never perish and so satan in his hatred of the woman of the church it says verse 15 the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood this is kind of fantastic language describing Satan's attempt to consume, to sweep away the people of God. And he has all sorts of methods and schemes for doing that. There are are parts of our world even today and certainly other times and ages where there's been intense persecution. But also the deceiver of the whole world points out or pours out every kind of error so that churches, Christians, lose their saltiness. They lose their witness. They become tasteless and insipid and useless. They water down the gospel message. There's no sin. There's no redemption. There's no salvation. And so there is no visible conflict. Now, there's some churches, Satan uh, injects division, and they're fussing, and they're fighting, and they're feuding with one another, and they're devouring one another. Other churches simply slide into the morass of worldliness, and they are so compromised there's no distinction between the people of God or those professing to be the people of God and the world. And there's some churches that are they're simply amusing themselves into spiritual oblivion. Satan will use any number of methods and schemes to try to sweep us away. And some of those schemes are working very effectively, at least for a time. But the promise of Jesus still stands. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is absolutely committed to presenting to himself a spotless, radiant bride. He's committed, as we read in Philippians 1.6, to complete the work he has begun in us. So in spite of all that the dragon unleashes on the woman... Ultimately, she is, we are protected, pointing to God's preserving, the provision of God to protect his church. He lifts us up on eagle's wings. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Isaiah chapter 40? And so the earth swallows up or opens up and swallows up these torrents of water that were intended to consume the woman. That's one expression of how God has placed the church out of Satan's reach, as it were. That doesn't mean that we're immune from persecution, but there is a limit to what Satan is allowed to do to the bride of Christ. He is able to kill individual Christians at particular times and particular places, but he cannot destroy the church no matter how he might try. All of his efforts will be defeated, and they will lead in Satan to greater frustration and even greater rage and greater fury. Don't miss the description here in verse 17. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The offspring of the woman, true believers. They bring forth the fruit of obedience, keeping the commandments of God. They, keep, they, they, they bring forth the fruit of holding fast the confession and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan's unleashing his attack on them. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is vile. He is malicious. He is wicked. He is dangerous. But he cannot ultimately defeat a single person for whom Jesus died. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy your body but cannot touch your soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. That's God. And if we walk in the fear of the Lord, we don't need to be afraid of Satan at all. He knows there's a limit to what he can do. Let me say that again. No matter how he might try to intimidate you, defeat you, oppress you, even kill you, he knows that there is a limit to what he is allowed to do. We don't always know that. We don't always feel that. But Satan knows. He knows what John wrote in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he Who is in the world. Part of our problem in dealing with Satan is that we we have a limited understanding of his schemes. Second Corinthians 2.11 warns about being outwitted by Satan, for we're not unaware of his schemes, but sadly, sometimes we are. I I love the Puritans for a number of reasons, but there are some wonderful Puritan works that show this, this, this conflict. Between Satan and between the people of God, the schemes of the devil, titles such as the evil of evils, speaking of sin, or the plague of plagues, Owen's classic work on sin and temptation, you open up and read and you feel like you're reading something that is as relevant as your morning this morning, or one of my absolute favorites by... Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You just read the table of contents, which is many pages, and you read of all these devices that Satan has to snare the soul into sin or to keep Christians in a sad and doubting uh, condition or to, uh, to make us careless about sin. And you think, how did I fall for that? I can't believe I've been so foolish. We have been ignorant of his schemes, but we need not be. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. Ephesians 4. Paul is in the practical part. He's he's laid out the gospel. He's explained what God has done for us in Christ. And he says in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, Now, because of that, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. And he says in verse 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity literally means place. Give him no place. NIV translates it, give him no foothold. So let me ask you, are you being careless about matters of sin? In this this particular context, it's being angry, sinfully angry. Are you giving a place to the devil in your life? Are you giving him a foothold such that he has a beachhead from which he can operate in your life? Paul isn't referring to an isolated event here. He's he's referring to a, a series of compromises. You know, Satan's never satisfied. He'll say just this once, and you give in to just this once, and then it's just one more time. But there is never just one more time. And once you surrender even that small part of your heart to him, it is so easy, it's increasingly easy to go back over and over again. And what once seemed inconceivable now has become, on some level, acceptable, and eventually it can become habitual. Let me say it again. What once seemed inconceivable, I would never do that. Well, on some level it becomes acceptable, and with further compromise, it can become habitual. And Satan's not in a hurry. He can be very patient. It can be a very long process. And at first, you you hardly notice that you've given up that little place. And you may not notice that place gets bigger and bigger like that frog in the kettle as it gets hotter and hotter. He's unaware because he's cold-blooded and his body uh, acclimates to that heat until ultimately he boils to death. And so we, we... we can be oblivious to Satan's schemes and and we hardly notice those initial compromises and that we're giving a place. And then at some point down the line, we stop and we look back and go, how did I get into this mess? One step at a time. One compromise at a time. One place, one foothold at a time. Does Satan have footholds like that in your life, Christian? Things like anger that's out of control. As Paul describes in Ephesians 4, or maybe bitterness or resentment or malice, or maybe sexual temptation, lust, pornography. And you say, I'll never do that again, and then again and again. Or maybe some hand habit that in its place might be acceptable, but it's placed you in bondage. Paul says, all things are acceptable, but I will not be mastered by anything, whether that's food or whether that's recreation, whether that's uh, 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 entertainment, whatever it might be, and you've become mastered by it, that it has an unhealthy hold on your life. Or maybe shading the truth. You you just sort of develop this habit of wanting people to like you. And so you're willing to shade the truth a bit to make yourself look a little bit better. So I want you to stop for a moment. just, 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 Just stop and take a look. Are there places I have given to the enemy? Are they footholds and beachheads he's established in my heart and in my life? That doesn't mean that you have lost your salvation. It means that you have compromised such that you are not as effective as a, a, a child of God as you ought to be and as you are entitled to be. I'm speaking here to people who are truly converted, truly Christians. If you're not a Christian, Satan has all of your life, whether you know it or not. You're following the course of the rule of the power of this air, and you may not even know it. But I'm speaking to Christians here. Mark this down. In the very inner recesses of your heart, Satan hates you, and he is dangerous. When I was in college, my first job, I was a janitor in a hospital, and I met this 16 year old boy who was driving his truck in the country, and he ran over a rattlesnake. And his brothers, older brothers, all had rattlesnake belts. So he said, I'm going to get a rattlesnake and make a belt. He ran over the the snake, killed it, went out, went to pick it up. And this dead snake, by reflex, was able to strike him in the hand. And when I met him, he was on a ventilator in the intensive care unit. Nearly died. Satan's a defeated foe, but he's still dangerous. And if he could kill you, he would do it. And the reality is, for some Christians, he might. If he could destroy your soul, he would do that, but he can't. He cannot destroy your soul, but he can snare you into sin. And if he can do so, if you allow him to do so, he will. If he can destroy your home, if he can destroy your character, if he can destroy your testimony, he will delight to do so. And one of the devices that he uses, he presents the bait. He makes it look all attractive, but he hides the hook. And you take the bait, and you're hooked. You've given a place to the enemy once again. Christian, Satan is your mortal enemy enemy. Do not forget that. Go back and read Revelation 12 and see just how much he hates your Lord and how much he hates your spiritual ancestors and just how much he hates you and every single other brother and sister you have in Christ. Don't be fooled and don't be seduced. World War II ended in August of 1945 when the Japanese Empire surrendered to the United States. But that surrender was preceded by intense fighting on all of these Pacific islands because the Japanese had inhabited and dug into all these Pacific islands to create for them a defensive perimeter where we couldn't land our bombers and then fly and attack Japan. So we had to dig them out one island after another. Stories are told of a number of Japanese soldiers who were on isolated Pacific islands and they never heard that the war had ended. So they never laid down their arms. And they continued to be dangerous. If you were to go on that island, they would try to kill you because they didn't know the war was over. Friends, Satan knows the war is over. He knows he's a defeated foe, but he is still just as dangerous and he still refuses to lay down his arms. And the deceiver of this whole world has deceived people to believing that we're the losers, that we're on the side that is ultimately defeated. Now we know better. We're not poor and pathetic and losing. We may be struggling at times, and we may be appear we may appear to be oppressed at times. But by the grace of God, we're on the side of the champion, and He will see us to the very end. God tells us our foe has been defeated once and for all, and that our Savior, our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, has won the victory. So while the drama continues, there's no mystery. We know how it ends. So brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, and I hope you are with all your heart, let us live with that confidence and with that holy resolve.